that's so mind-boggling about this is that at every one of these junctures, people followed what is supposedly the right thing to do for kids from activists. And at every time, it was just absolutely catastrophic for Sage. And this is a real person. This is not a hypothetical. This is a real person. And she's not the only ones. We have all kinds of stories that fit with parts of Sage's story. She had the tragic experience of essentially being failed by every single person in every one of these institutions that that should have protected her. My name is Michelle Blair. I'm the mother and grandmother of Sage Blair. I adopted Sage when she was just shy of two years old. Sage is now 16 and a survivor of sex trafficking. Hers is a tragic story and it is a miracle that she was found alive. I am eternally grateful that she survived. God is definitely in the details. When Sage was 13 years old, she began to question who she was. Puberty and COVID hit hard. Her mental health began to decline. I thought I could, I had a handle on it until she began her first day of ninth grade at Appomattox High School. Sage decided to identify as a boy only because she thought the attention would help her find friends. Well, she did get lots of attention, just not the attention that helped her. Instead, the attention harmed her due to the actions of the school. Her school teachers and counselors <coughs> never told me that Sage was identifying as a boy. They never told me nor bothered to even request a parent meeting. Instead, they encouraged her transition behind my back, and they never told me that a counselor encouraged her to use the boys' bathroom. And the other counselor gave her two transgender sites and encouraged her to use the chat rooms to meet similar kids. They never told me she was being threatened with physical harm. They never told me she was being bullied. They never told me she was petrified until it was too late. My daughter ran away. She ran from home into a, um, the hands of a sex trafficking ring. At only 14 years old, my daughter lost her innocence. It was tragic. Sage was gone 344 days. She is now home. She is safe. She is working with a trauma therapist who is honest with me. Recently, I asked Sage, what advice she would tell other kids about her experience in running away. Her response, the reason why getting groomed, kidnapped isn't fun. You will get tortured mentally and physically. You could be potentially killed if you don't want to kill yourself by then. Groomers don't care about you. They will hurt you. So I want to thank you for allowing me to speak here today. We all need to speak up on what is happening to our children, not just here in Virginia, but in everywhere. It's a social contagion that is attacking our children from within the family unit, which is exactly why Delegate Dave LaRocque proposed Sage's Law during the last legislative session, a bill that seeks to ensure that a child cannot undergo any type of gender transition under school supervision without the knowledge of a parent or a legal guardian. I hope that by me speaking here today, you may begin to understand why this is so important. I'm not here to tell you how to raise your children. I'm not here to criticize school officials and counselors. I'm here to share my story in the hopes that it may save one child from what Sage had to endure. Because I never in a million years thought what happened to Sage could happen right here in my own backyard, but it did. The bottom line is that we need schools to communicate with parents. This is there is absolutely no way that any school staff could know my child better than can know a child better than the parent. Please respect our parental rights. If you have knowledge of a child identifying as anyone other than what is on their school record, advise the parent. 
Because if you don't, you become part of the problem, not part of the solution. A child needs their family. Even children from abused homes need professional support to keep the family together. Our children are trying to grow up in a lost world, a world that wants to teach even pre-K children that they can be any gender they feel. And we won't tell your parents. My heart breaks for the children that have run away to a glitter family and are still missing. We don't hear about them because the parents are too traumatized to think straight. I know, I'm one of those parents. Had the had my daughter's school involved me, she would not have a lifetime sentence of PTSD. So please hear me. If you don't think this could happen to your child, think again. I was a mom whose top priority was safety of my daughter, yet she slipped right through the cracks because of a school's decision to keep me in the dark, a decision that almost killed my daughter. In the words of Benjamin Franklin, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Please help schools to become part of the cure. It does take a village. Please be part of a healthy village, a village that insists on honesty between schools and parents. Thank you. Hello, Joyful Warriors. Uh, welcome. I, that's, a, that's a shocking clip I know to start the show off with, but this is a shocking story to talk about. And I have a guest today that's joining me, Laura Hanford, who's going to tell us a little bit more about Sage's Law. But you just heard from a woman, uh, a mother, uh, a, a grandmother of, of a girl who has raised her since she was two. And um, I think, Laura, what I want to talk about you with you today is really, I think every parent thinks this is not going to happen to them. This is not going to happen to my family, right? I'm a good mom. I'm an involved mom. This isn't going to happen. But the question that I've really come to as far as this idea of gender transition is, how many more families is this going to have to directly affect before we stop this? So welcome and tell us about the journey of, say, uh, of Sage's Law throughout the legislature and what parents have been trying to do in Virginia. Sure. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and I think, Tiffany, the, the bottom line here is that secrecy in schools has consequences that people just have no idea about. Um, it seems like a you know, benign thing maybe to the way it gets presented. But the bottom line is Michelle's right that one, that the secrecy has a domino effect. So in Virginia, this has been an issue for a long time. And and just to, to set the context a little bit, Appomattox is a in a rural area of Virginia. It's not what you would think of as a school that is full of um, you know, urban parents that it doesn't have a big LGBTQ presence or anything like that. Um, it was just in the one of the many, many schools around the country that has been targeted by activists. And a lot of parents don't know that there is a group gender spectrum and some of its allies, but gender spectrum is one of the main ones that has been targeting schools for um, years, even decades, in getting materials into schools that help school that train schools to put in place gender support plans, like what Michelle was talking about. And a foundational aspect of these materials and these plans is the notion that parents are potentially unsafe, schools are the safe place for for kids, and so there's this whole gender support transition plan that is secret, and the secrecy is. Um, one is essentially the cornerstone of the program, which is a huge problem right there. That's got to be a red flag because who tells you to keep secrets? It's never in the best interest of a child to keep secrets from their parents, unless you know, of course, there are going to be some situations where you have to. 
Um, but well, let's stop there for yeah, a second. Sure. That's an important point. You know, I was a school board member. I was mm -hmm. a mandatory reporter when I was serving right. in elected office. I understood the training that school districts put, you know, teachers had to go through, counselors had to put to be, go through in order to be mandatory reporters. But the idea of what a vulnerable child is, mm -hmm. is changing. And right. so, you know, you, this, you, you come into this place that's subjective. Like what does a danger to a child mean? You know, Laura, I've said on this podcast before, I'm going to say again, if my daughter had come home and was pregnant at 16, she probably would have said at school, oh my gosh, my mom is going to kill me. Right. right. Like, right. was I going to actually kill her? Right. No. No right. sane, healthy parent is killing their child. Right. No. Right. But, right. So here we are now in a situation where you have a subjective, you've got a school that's making decisions, you know, is it safe to tell the parents the truth about this child and, and what they're talking about at school? Right. And one of the one of the really key pieces here is that all of these materials are based on the concept that gender identity trumps everything else and that, you know, from an, an innate this is innate. It's your identity. In fact, I was testifying this morning in favor of Governor Yunkin from Virginia's new policies that require schools to notify parents if there's a question of gender transition at school. And so this has been wildly fought by activists. And it's this notion of secrecy that's really the cornerstone. And um, and that that was the whole people this morning were, were using this particular argument that um, the schools are the safe space and that parents are somehow, somehow dangerous. And that the schools, the person right before Michelle that we watched or the clip that we saw just now said, you know, you need to trust the, the school mom of these kids. No, there's no school mom of these kids. Teachers are wonderful. No. I've had wonderful teachers for my kids who are in the public school system. They're not there at two o'clock in the morning when my child is projectile vomiting. That's what I, They're not that's there. That's what I asked the other day summer. on Twitter. I said, well, public schools in general, this is what I, this is the disconnect here, Laura. Because public schools, if your kid has lice, they don't treat the lice at school. They call you and say, excuse me. Right. They used to say, pick up your child. Now the child finishes the day and comes home with a letter that says your child has lice and that you need to treat right. it before the child can come back. But if your child has a fever at school, right. they may take the temperature of the child, which is non-invasive, but and you right. have given access, you have given right. consent for that to happen when right. you sign your original forms, but they're not giving medication to your child. That's right. And in, in, I've had the same experience. They'll call me to ask for my permission to give a Tylenol. And yet in Virginia and a lot of other places like this, under the old guidelines, right before Governor Yunkin's guidelines were passed, and the ones that were sort of in place when, um, when Sage was going through all this, was this idea that or, or you could have, you had to have permission for Tylenol, but not for transition in schools, not for an entire team of experts at the school to be appointed to your child. Fairfax adopted the same policy. So I'm very familiar with this policy. You have a whole transition team at school interacting with your child, unfettered access of adults that are health completely mental health care. to your child, mental health care. But these could be like the 20 year old counselor that just came out of, you know, that's doing an internship from the LGBTQ advocacy project down the road. So this is not, these are not people that are qualified to make decisions, permanent life-altering decisions about your child. And we now know that, um, that social transition, we have a lot of evidence that shows that social transition locks in identity 
Um, and so you could have a child that is conceivably concealing this, leading a double life at home and at school for months, even years under the old guidelines. When the child turns 18, they have control of their own medical decisions. So they could go from being groomed, and I'm going to use that word, I don't just throw that word around, but for two years to think this is what's going to bring them happiness. They're unhappy in their own skin. They're going to be happy if they transition and get hormones. So there's nothing to stop them once they hit 18. And you as the parent might not even know this whole time. And this, this well, in idea- North Carolina, I'm going to interrupt you. So mm-hmm. in some of these states, the age of informed consent is 12. That's right. California, Oregon, Washington State, is, and several of those states are implementing plans where there's a, a huge battle in California right now. And California parents need to, to, to you know, really go down to Sacramento and protest this. A lot of them have been organizing. But where a child could just disappear at school one day and a, an adult completely unrelated to them can decide, oh, um, you know, I'm going to sign off on this kid's will, this kid's desire to transition. The kid could disappear into residential centers operated by the state and where they have access to life-altering medical treatment. So it's really, it's a shocking, I mean, a cultural nanosecond ago, everyone knew that from the dawn of time, parents are their child's greatest protectors, right? The, the whole mama bear concept, I mean, parents and by law, this is what we recognize by law. And yet suddenly in this new lexicon, parents aren't, it's not just normal to notify parents like you would of anything else. It's forced outing. There's new terms for this. Um, And safe spaces are schools, not parents. Well, my kid's safe space. I certainly hope they're safe at school and I do everything I can to make sure they are. But my kid's safe space is our home, our family. Um, And just to, to... one one thing that came up this morning, one of the activists that was so angry this morning at the new Yunkin di- Guidelines on Transparency was saying, this isn't about ideology, this is about identity. Well, the fact of the matter is, it is about ideology. There's no sense in which gender identity has a verifiable marker of any sort. And the medical care is all very, very, is based on very shoddy evidence. And yet we're using that to instantly transition kids at school. So while you were testifying in front of the Board of Education this morning in Congress, uh, Chloe Cole was testifying. Um, And um, it was really moving. I mean, I've heard, you know, you and I had an opportunity to hear her speak with a lot of other moms. I think every mom in that room was just moved to tears listening to her story and talking about the pain that she feels in her body her hopes and dreams for the future and not knowing how real those are for her, knowing that certain things, you know, she mentioned again today, I'll never breastfeed a child, right? I still, and, um, you know, so we're in this moment where it's like part of the country doesn't even know this is happening, Mm -hmm. right? Part of the country knows it's happening and is totally freaked out because it's so, the idea that you're telling the ch- a child that they're ever born in the wrong body, the idea that you're um, telling a child they could go through the wrong puberty by just natural development happening, right? And that, right. I mean, when has big pharma and when have drugs right. ever been something, right? That right. we've, that, that, I mean, you know, they, they're, most good pediatricians are not medicating children all the time, right. right? We know that children get sick and it's natural and there are a lot of, you know, things they go through. Right. Um, and as moms, 
And yet not a focus on helping moms to raise healthy kids where like even during COVID, uh, my questions were like, all this money we're spending, could we give every parent uh, a, a thermometer? Right. Could we explain about how to control fever and cough, right? Could mm-hmm. we, all these different ways we could help to support parents to have healthy children. And yet here we are at this like very hard time in life anyway. I have four kids, mm-hmm. right? 11 to 18. Puberty's hard. It's it not is. easy for any of them. Right. And we're taking the parent out of this child's life. And so in, with this sage's law, with listening to Michelle, and I'm going to have mm-hmm. her on the podcast and talk with her directly because I want to hear sure. a little bit more about, you know, there's always this question like, well, how, how could you be so out of touch as a parent that you wouldn't know this is happening? Like you're some type of a bad parent, right? I think they lob that at you. Like that's the problem. Right. But when you listen to Michelle's story, you know, it was very intentionally kept from her. And she right. was just trying to be like, this is a phase that my, you know, kid, my grandchild is going through. I'm not right. going to, you know, there are many that would say that that's the healthy thing to do as a mom, right? right? And I I'd actually, I'd like to pick up on that point because um, I spent, um, in fact, our families have become friends too. I have kids in the same age bracket, mine are 12 to 21, um, five kids. And um, so I, I have, the first time I heard Sage's story, I just, I, I defy any any parent to hear that story without, without tears. I mean, it's just when you listen to the whole story and, and I would um, just refer listeners to the article that I worked on for several months with Michelle, where we carefully went back through transcripts and documents and records um, to be sure that we had an accurate story of records. Because to be clear, Laura, she was taken across state lines. She was drugged and sexually abused. I mean, this is, she was put into a horribly vulnerable position. And just to hear the timeline, though, this is the shocking part. So she's a ninth grader, and Michelle Michelle is not an uninvolved parent. She's actually right. what we call a CASA, which is a child advocate or a court-appointed special advocate for children in foster care who have been abused. This is not a mom who's out of touch or who would react in a crazy way to hear. She's heard it all. She's, she goes into homes and, and visits kids, and she pulled Sage out of foster care herself. So this is not a mom who is overreactive or who is out of touch. She knows how to recognize the signals. Um, Over the summer, Sage had already had some very difficult mental health issues. She references this in her school board speech. Um, And so she and Michelle had carefully notified the school of all this, that there were health issues, there was medication, you know, they're just like the issues that you, anything that that you sort of notify. The counselors never once bothered to, um, to read the file. But consistent with these guidelines, instead of seeing transition as something that may be one of a constellation of things or gendered confusion, one of a constellation of things that that could be caused by something else, because of the Northern Guidelines on secrecy, the counselors took it as identity, not ideology, not, you know, disorder of any sort. Mm -hmm. And they instantly affirmed her and they told her to use the boys' bathroom. And the total amount of time Sage spent from the time she began school, and she had told her mom that she was dressing emo. So she was going through a phase. She was wearing boys' clothes. Her her mom had taken her to buy the boys' clothes. Her dad took her to get her hair dyed with a blue streak. I mean, these, these were not parents that were freaking out over right. gender nonconformity. Uh, and a, there was an 11-day period between the time Sage started school wanted- and when she ran away. What 11 days? 11 days. So what I'm telling you is these counselors 
immediately affirmed her. There was no questions. Oh, you're identifying as a boy. You should be using the boy's bathroom. There was no discussion. There was no notification. She was badly bullied. There were several instances. She was being shoved up against a wall. She was being touched. She was assaulted in the boy's bathroom. The school never told her parents there were reports of assault. In fact, for two whole days, they were having meetings with Sage by themselves. They brought the police in. They looked at video footage. Never involved Michelle until um, she, Sage got so distraught in one of these meetings, they called Michelle and were afraid that, they, that she might hurt herself. So think about that 11-day period. Not once did they have a conversation with Michelle over gender transition. And it was the night, that night, when, um, so this, the, she was assaulted on a Monday. Several boys, and the, the video footage confirms that there are boys that were in, heading into the bathroom. So her, I mean, her, you know, something happened there. She, w- she told her mom later she'd been jacked up against the wall, threatened. She'd already been threatened by some of these boys. She was terrified. This is a kid who's like, you know, 95 pounds soaking wet. She's in the boys' bathroom that the counselor told her to use. And it's, it's the night, so the, 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 by, the, by two days after all these meetings with the school, she's incredibly distraught. And that's the day Michelle found a hall pass in Sage's backpack. And Sage told her she had a, with a different name on it. And Sage acknowledged to her that she was going by, you know, she was going by a boy at school and was in tears and, you know, scared to death of all this bullying. That's the night she ran away. So the, the counselors did exactly what gender spectrum tells them to do. They instantly affirmed, they took her to word, they never bothered to check whether to talk to parents, they kept it secret. And then to make matters worse, so she was kept, she was found nine days later by the FBI, sex trafficked across two state lines. She'd been drugged, she'd been raped, it was just horrifying. In the home of a known predator and the judge in Maryland, what he pulls out of that, here's a, a tiny victim of terrible sex trafficking. They refused to give her back to her parents on the grounds that they were somehow misgendering her and that was abusive. And I would encourage listeners to, like I said, to read, to read the story, to listen to Michelle's testimony before the, before the education committee, because it's heartbreaking, you know, and then, and then guess who comes in to testify against Michelle based on minutes over 11 days? The counselors come in, they get called in before this judge who withholds custody of Sage on the grounds that somehow they're being abusive because of gender. And just like gender spectrum trains teachers to do, it trains them that they have special, that's literally in their materials, that they have special insight to the child without the biases that a parent might be presumed to have. And so these counselors, knowing her for all of minutes, come in and testify and change her life help change her life because the judge then uses that testimony to say, oh, well, you know, they're not sufficiently affirming to her. The judge put Sage in foster care in male quarters. This girl who had just been sex trafficked and she was assaulted again, of course, because she's in state custody. Finally, two months later, she's appointed a public defender who tells her her mom no longer wants her. She's not in any state to assess what's realistic or not. 
and her mother is sending her all these letters. She's they're keeping her out of contact with her with her daughter while her mother's having to deal with all these spurious abuse sound claims. Real, Laura. It sounds like something I know. It it doesn't but every single point, every institution that should have protected her failed her instead. And so they withheld all the letters from her mom. And months later, so and she eventually ended up running away with the help of a teacher who gave her a backpack to run away. So, and then she got caught by another sexual predator. And that time it was months. And it was only because Michelle just relentlessly searched on social media for any clues or anything else that finally law enforcement wow. found her in Texas. And one of those times afterwards, she was talking to Michelle and she said, she said um, something along the lines of, you know, um, mom, I, you know, I know you didn't want me anymore, but I just missed you so much. I tried not to miss you. And Michelle just said, what, what are you talking about? And it turns out the pro the person who was, had her case in court there in Maryland had told her that her mom didn't want her anymore because she was identifying as a boy and they would find her a home, a foster home in Maryland. So she had flat out lied and she never received a single one of these letters that Michelle had been pouring her heart into to show Sage that she was fighting to get her back. I mean, it's just the evil and the cruelty Where is was really Sage's voice in all of this. Like, I'm just curious mm -hmm. now. So, you know, you, you, this is a ninth grader. She's how old at this point? She's 14. 15, she was 14, 14, 14. Mm -hmm. And so are they asking her at any of these points? Do you want, you know, I'm just so curious about that part of it. Like, was she given the opportunity to say no or to go back home um, or to, did she reach right. out to Michelle? I'm just curious about that. So this is part of the the tricky part, and this is going to get this is going to get looked at very seriously. Um, and I know I gave you the link to post for for those who might want to help Sage and her family um, have justice in this situation because there are clearly actors in in this whole scenario that there was tremendous and tragic injustice in this, and so there are some amazing people that are representing her in an effort to, to make sure that justice is served. Um, but, um, I'm sorry, that was, that was, I wanted to get that in there. That was a little sidetracked. No, no, that's um, fine. No, of course, of course. I mean, but, it's so difficult. It feels sure. the system has so many resources available to right. them and there's so much money pouring into these, um, activist organizations that parents are really left in this place where it's like, okay, we'll just fend for yourself and you know, everybody right. well, else she has their lawyers and never exactly. Yeah. And this was one of this was one of the the things was Michelle just scoured three states to find an attorney, and as soon as it was like a transgender case up, not taking it, it was too hard. So mm -hmm. she's being she's being she's having to represent herself while the judge is castigating her for not having representation. I mean, it's just it's one of these gaslighting, just kind of cruel sort of systems. But Sage Sage, looking back, you know she she was so she was so traumatized she's had a year or two now to look back and she will say that she doesn't know why she did that she knows she wanted friends she didn't know why she was saying she was a boy she wanted friends she you know she she's really not a boy um and the problem is that we don't know what happened exactly from the time she was picked up um so she was she she ran away that night after telling her mom about how scared she was and um she ran away that night and that's when she was picked up by these these predators and trafficked across state lines but she was prevented from being with her mom that whole time and we don't know exactly what happened she was in no condition she was a victim of sex trafficking she was no in no condition at all to be making decisions 
I have, you know, I think some of those things are going to have to, to be understood, but she's, so what, so what she, Sage also um, has um, some of the memories, just, it was so awful that some, some things have come out over time and in therapy. So there's a lot that she shared with her mom when her mom rescued her from Texas. Um, she, at that point, the judge had found a place for her to go to order her to go to um, a, a treatment facility, but they had insisted it be one that would affirm her as male. And we don't know who was really, we don't know how much of that was Sage. We don't know how much of that was the attorney. We know from, we even have, we have um, very Sorry. clear records that um, that the attorney saw this as a way to go all the way to the Supreme Court with a case. So the attorney wanted to prove a case a case of misgendering based on abuse and even told Sage to lie that Michelle and Roger were abusing her. That's yeah. and and you know Sage told her mom about that when she picked her up in Texas and just said how guilty she felt that she had gone along with that but she had been coached to do that. Well, a 14-year-old child who has been through 9 days of gang rape and drugs is in no position to be able to say whether she's a girl, a boy or anything else. And so the the ability the, the vulnerability there is just off the charts. And when she is told that her parents don't want her anymore, you know, she she's just been abused for 9 straight days by adults. So I don't, you know, I think some of those questions theoretically she was going by, you know, she was saying we know the prosecutor has said that you know, whether, I mean, the, the defender, um, supposedly she was identifying as a boy throughout that time. And she, maybe she was, I mean, honestly, and maybe she was. And and, and the truth of the matter is that, you know, again, going back to the testimony today that I saw and I'm watching the, Mm -hmm. just the dichotomy, like you've got Chloe Cole talking about the regret that she felt and what her parents were told. And then you have, you know, a lawyer with independent women's forum who's speaking and you have a doctor from family research council who's speaking, right? Dr. Bowens, I believe. Mm -hmm. And you have all these people that are talking about the fact that we're talking about children. They can't consent to puberty blockers. They can't be making these lifelong decisions, right? right? There are lots of different phases that children go through. And then you, uh, and then on the other side of it, it's like this complete disconnect. Right. And, you know, the idea, again, that we're disrupting the natural development of, of, of human beings mm-hmm. and somehow that we would ever see that making someone a lifelong medical patient is a good right. thing right. in any way right. is just crazy. That's right. It's just, you know, and so, you know, as much as I sit here and I'm listening to this story and it's like, it's just unbelievable that this is happening you know, well, and people say, what does sex trafficking look like in America? This is what it looks like. This looks like vulnerable girls who right. get uh, put into a position where they apparently are looking for solace and looking for connection. Right. And people take advantage of that vulnerability. And I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I, you know, I made bad decisions at at 14. I made bad decisions probably at 19. Yeah, we all, I mean, I, I absolutely made some bad, yeah. I mean, this, this is- I'm not, that let me down yeah, that path, yeah, right. but, but that certainly put my, even, you know, even now as an adult, there are sometimes things that I'll do that I'll think to myself, well, I just put myself in kind of a vulnerable position, right? Maybe that would, maybe I could have done that in a different way, but when you're a kid, you're not thinking about those right. things. So accepting a ride from someone right. or kindness from someone online that's telling you, you know, I'll take care of you. And I know you're going through a hard time. I'll give you a place to come and think, or I can, you can see how that would happen. Right. Um, but from a mother's perspective, 
to have the class, to have the school betray you right. in that manner and open that door and then 344 days. Right. I mean, my God. Right. Well, and because what, what happened then, she had to go into this facility that had been ordered by the judge and Michelle did have visiting rights, but she was terrified of everything that, that, I mean, Sage was, was just medicated and, you know, had a hard time in that facility where she was still, um, identifying as a boy. But when Michelle came to visit with her, she said, mom, I don't want to be a boy anymore. And they're pressuring me. I don't, I I don't want to, don't tell them, but I don't want to be a boy anymore. Will you go out and get me some girl clothes? So Sage was feeling pressured by the doctors then to go through with, with quote unquote gender affirming care. So they had to get an attorney with the family foundation, thankfully, who stepped in and said, you know, we just got to get you out of there. And so, so he did. And that was the first step to healing. But by the time, so she, she was essentially, she was the thing that's so mind boggling about this is that at every one of these junctures, people followed what is supposedly the right thing to do for kids from activists. And at every time, it was just absolutely catastrophic for Sage. And this is a real person. This is not a hypothetical. This is a real person. And she's not the only ones. We have all kinds of stories that fit with parts of Sage's story. She had the tragic experience of essentially being failed by every single person in every one of these institutions that that should have protected her. I mean, it's just, it is really incredible. The bottom line is the way that these situations are handled, the standard care for gender dysphoria, the procedures and processes in these schools have to change. As you brought up and you started when we were talking, I know from firsthand experience as a school board member, these policies did not come before me as a school board member. They came through as procedure. And so when you were saying as a school board member, having a policy saying that, you know, we want all school, we want all children to feel safe and valued in an inclusive environment. And you think you're, you know, saying very nice words that of course everyone wants every child to feel safe and valued and included, right? Mm-hmm. What's happening on the back end, on the process side, is you have the superintendent and that student services department working to get procedures put into place that are that that you know may sound the same as what you think is happening, but are actually something very different. So, Laura, for parents that are wondering. What do the documents look like in my mm-hmm. schools? How am I going to safeguard from this happening? Some advice for them, please. Yeah, well, I would start with the fact that in, in some schools, there are most schools should have an actual policy. There's no way they can be doing this or should be doing this without a written policy. And I would go to parents, start with looking at the website for Parents Defending Education because they have looked at school districts across the country, they have the actual support plans for transgender students, the model policies for something like 17,000 schools across the country. And so you can see if your school district is one of them, but you should be able to get a straight answer. In Fairfax, um, our school board adopted a version of this policy. So our school board is fully in line with the old Northern policies and has announced that they basically, they, they plan to defy Northern Virginia plans to not at all um, abide by the guidelines that the Yunkin administration just passed. And it's a murky area because Virginia has, um, Virginia school boards have more autonomy than some school boards. But, um, but there is no reason why 
every school board in the nation can't receive pressure from parents to pass a policy that actually protects kids. Um, There was a a school board in Chino, California, that just took a stand for transparency over and against um, Gavin Newsom's awful policy of secrecy. And we need school boards all across the country to do that. So I would say find out first what the policy is. I would also say opt your child out of, if there are services like counseling services and you don't know what they stand for, you don't know what the policy is, a lot schools are ground zero for um, for the foot in the door for activists. And this is why it seems just bizarre that anyone would be so angry and so outraged over just notifying parents of what's going on in their lives. I mean, that's just, like I said, <laughs> I, like always, a, I always I think mean, I said, I posted on Twitter today. I said, I made some statements like parents have the fundamental right to direct the upbringing of their children and we don't co-parent with the government. Mm-hmm. And I said like, these should not be controversial statements not to make in all. the United States of America. But they are right now. They're making people very angry. They are. And that tells you something because if your whole if your whole movement is based on secrecy from parents and on removing the people that know the children best and love them the most from their kids' lives, then that tells you something about what what are they trying to hide? You know, why is this so essential? Why are you so invested in someone else's child knowing things that you think they should know and secretly helping them live a double life. I mean, this would have been grounds for dismissal, just like I said, a nanosecond ago. I mean, parents being in charge has been a no-brainer from the, you know, from the dawn of time. But they've very successfully been able to rebrand things. And that's that's part of the battle is this sort of Orwellian recrafting of language. It's not forced outing to notify parents of things that are important about their child's mental health. It's not up to the school to decide whether, you know, because we know that social transition is actually the first step in a, in a treatment protocol. So it's not up to the schools aren't qualified to do that. And they shouldn't have that burden on them. And there's plenty of teachers who, who want to teach and not be told they have to keep all these secrets from parents. It doesn't help anyone to have a philosophy predicated on secrecy and on the presumption. This is the big problem, the presumption that parents are dangerous. That's absurd. Right. A hundred percent. And and again, when your child has lice, no no one's coming to your home to help you do the treatment and pick out all the nits and do that. That's a, I've done that. Um, yeah, it's not do. fun. <laughs> it's not fun. And nobody's helping you do that. No <laughs> one's coming right. over at nine o'clock and helping you do that. You know, th- this is the thing. It's like this weird position that we're in. I, I said, you know, what 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 should healthcare look like at schools? right now. There's a great question that I really want to talk about because our schools are not teaching our kids to learn to read very well. That's right. Or actually not well at all. And yet here they're taking on all these other responsibilities regarding the medical care of the child. And Tina and I talk a lot about, you know, the mental health of the child is important. Um, right. And does it affect the ability for the child to learn in school? Yes, it does. But we also know that parents are the number one driver of student success. Right. And so if you do want the child to be successful, you're going to work to engage the parent in every decision that's being made. And certainly when it comes to health care. And right. so coming out of a time with COVID, where we saw there were a lot of people who really didn't give a hoot about our kids' mental health or their physical health, in my opinion. I don't think they, they showed they didn't really care. 
this this now overindulgence of care. Yeah. Right? So to speak. It's, it's, so to speak, yeah. It's pretty fishy, right. right? And so Sage's law did not pass. It passed your house, but it did not pass your Senate in That's Virginia. Right. Is that correct? It almost okay. passed. And there's there's a very interesting one of the sort of going back to what parents can do. People need to be aware of the of these types of laws coming through, and they need to advocate for them. So, in Sage's law, was a very simple, very common sense measure to to basically shut the door on the secrecy that led to Sage's sex, sex trafficking. So, problem is, you open that door to secrecy. There's a domino effect. One lie leads to another. The school told her she could use a boy's bathroom. Well, they hadn't told the parents, so they don't kind of tell the parents that there was an issue there, and then. Meanwhile, one thing leads to the next, and then who's going to walk through that secrecy door? You know, you could have just well-intentioned, but, you know, ill-informed teachers, but you could, which, you know, hopefully that's all you have, but then you could have what happened to Sage because the isolation factor is related to the secrecy factor. If they can't share with their parents, they're on, they're also online looking for resources. The counselor gave Sage transgender websites that actually linked to transgender pornography. I'm sure he wasn't planning on, you know, I'm sure he didn't know that, but there are sites online. Roblox has a transgender chat room with an escape button that says, hide your screen from your parents. So So does the Trevor Project. Yeah, so does the Trevor Project. So these are, they're designed to drive a wedge between kids and their parents. And kids are at, you know this, I know this, this is an opposite, you know, there's this individuation is a natural part of adolescence. And part of what you're doing is sort of pushing the boundaries and working all that out. And so to have an outside third person come in and drive that nice little wedge, you're not safe at home, but you're safe with me. I'm your safe space. I mean, that's like Predator 101. So the best uh, advice that I ever got, I remember, and I, I was listening to someone talking about raising kids and I have to go figure out who said it who originally said it, they were talking about teenagers. And they said, you know, when you sit down on a roller coaster and the bar comes down and you like instinctively push against the bar, and it's not because you want the bar to fail, it's that you want to know that the bar is there to protect you. And that's Mm -hmm. that whole, as you said, the whole part of growing up and and becoming an individual and making your own decisions, but with that guardrail of your parents being there, because sometimes the most loving thing you say to your kid is no. Is no. And that's not easy to do. But, you know, and, and so I think this story with Michelle and Sage is so important because you have parents who are doing what most parents would normally do and what I would do in my own home, which is like, okay, you want to dress like that, I guess, you know, I, I, I let my kids pick their clothes and stuff. I try, I don't freak out, right? But to, to see, as you said, that, that, that new adult come in and disrupt that, that sacred relationship between the parent and the child that isn't going to be affirmative all the time because, again... Saying yes all the time isn't necessarily healthy, right? Um, is such a problem. And it's just something that parents need to know about. And I continue to say on this issue that parents just deserve the truth. We talk about parental rights around this issue. Parents just need to understand, you know, what actually puberty blockers do to kids, what the long-term harms of some of this is with the social transition. I think people, Americans in general, need to understand. And then once they understand, as you've said, this is the foot in, this is the the first step on the path, you realize how important it is to kind of, to, to definitely stop it. 
Right. So, and, and they, in Sage's case, in the Sage's law, I mean, it was just a basic notify parents. You can't have counseling. It didn't even say what you had to do or that you couldn't transition your child if you ended up feeling that was right. It just put the parent in the driver's seat. Notify right. the parent, get permission from parent from counseling. And it's not abuse to raise a boy as a boy or a girl as a girl. I mean, right. that's like, these are like as common sense as it gets. And yet those are the battle lines right now. Um, and I so wanted to just make sure parents are, also knew yeah, about Lost in Trans, it probably won't show up there, but Lost in Trans Nation is a book. It actually talks quite a bit about Sage, Sage's story um, by a child psychiatrist and there's a lot of, you know, she has just wonderful, wonderful resources there. So I would Dr. highly Grossman. recommend to any parent. Yeah, Dr. Grossman. Dr. Parent. Grossman. So she's actually going to come on the podcast oh, and talk great. a little bit good. yeah, good, good. Uh, with us about, about that. Because, yeah, I mean, I just think, again, as we started this conversation, we will end it. No one is safe from this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think part of our duty as moms is to help each other and to learn from each other and... Um, you know, parents don't put a bike helmet on their kid because their kid's been hurt before on a bike. You do it because you know That's there's right. the potential for that to happen. And so I think with a lot of these laws that you're seeing in the activ- activism across the country, it's uh, it's a proactive measure to say, like, That's right. this happened to Sage. It doesn't need to happen to your daughter, too. So, Laura, thank you for being uh, so passionate and for and being persistent um, about uh, making sure that people understand what happened to Sage and why these laws are so important. Um, if people want to learn more about um, how they can help to support Sage's law in the future or how they can offer support to Governor Youngkin and his campaign for transparency, um, just you know, maybe some extra things you can share and how people can follow you. Sure, sure. So um, I think uh, you have the link, I believe, for um, the child and parental rights campaign. So that's one specific way um, to help not only Sage, but the issue is that's a precedent setting case. So this is going to be a precedent set for school secrecy and for judicial abuse. So it's it's really important. So um, that would be one. Uh, Secondly, um, certainly, especially if you're in Virginia, you can su- submit comments to Governor Yuckin. I would say advocate for policies on transparency. Ask your school and then proactively present a measure like the Yuckin policies to your governor. If there isn't one, um, there should be laws that prohibit school secrecy. So put people on the spot to say no. Don't just assume they're going to do the right thing. Don't ask them to do this. Take these models. Take Sage's Law gather a group of parents, go find, and that's one other point, is elect people that are genuinely going to represent your interest. Every single Democrat voted against Sage's Law, and that is just unconscionable. If you vote to keep the door open to predators, you have no business claiming to represent children, period. So we need to get rid of all these people in the state Senate or that that are voting against children. I mean, this is as basic as it gets and work to help get people elected, work to help people understand what's going on. Um, and there's quite a few people. I mean, Tiffany, you're doing a fabulous job of mm-hmm. notifying people, of sort of educating people. So your podcasts, um, certainly there's plenty of people that you can follow. You can follow me, but there's plenty of other people putting out systematic research, parents defending education. There's all kinds of great resources. Yeah, out there, there are tons of great resources, parents defending education. Again, that's a great resource. You're right. Go look and see if your school district has a policy. I'll say in closing, however, some of this is happening procedurally and there isn't a policy. So you're going to need to ask what's the procedure when a child is presenting uh, with gender right. dysphoria. And that's the question you're going to need to ask. And don't, you know, you should 
just send an email to the superintendent and ask that question and, and let's, you know, start getting some answers back. You are the parent. Love is an expertise. Trust yourself. Right, Laura? That's we right. Need to trust Absolutely. Ourselves. Yes. I, my daughter almost died because the doctors didn't pick up on how dehydrated she was. So yes, you sometimes, and good pediatricians, good psychiatrists, good, do, good doctors know to trust parents. Parents have yep. that instinct because they know their kids. So, so, so much of this was preventable as long as you don't view parents as the enemy. And this is, you know, they're, they're the ones best able to care for their children. So yeah, I think it's a yes. yes. Again, no, no, no teacher, no government official coming over to pick the lice out of your children's uh, hair. That right. will be that's or to clean right. up the vomit at two a.m. That mm-hmm. will definitely be your job, parents. Still, so uh, yes, uh, Laura. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we are going to work to get uh, Michelle on the show and that's and have Dr. Grossman as well and talk a little bit more uh, in depth about the specific uh, story um, that Sage went through, so that we can have a better idea. Um, about the fact that this stuff is actually happening right now in America. And um, we need to, we can't just scroll past it. We need to engage and pay attention and make sure it doesn't happen in our own home. So thank you, Laura, for joining me. Thank you, Tiffany. Really appreciate your focusing in on this.